Good evening and welcome to Bible study. So glad you're here. I want to get started tonight in prayer. So let's take a moment. I'd like you to uh, just join me in prayer. I think uh, we're just going to ask God's blessing our time. Father, uh, thank you for uh, love and life and we thank you for life together. We ask God that this would be a time where you speak to us as individuals and you speak to us as a group. We ask God for your leading and your guiding. We pray for your revelation tonight. God, your word would open up to us. And I pray for new understandings. I pray for new meaning. I pray, God, for new application for our lives. We ask that you bless our time together. We ask, God, that you'd be glorified. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles or you want to grab a Bible off the table, either way is awesome. But uh, we're going to open up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. <clears throat> and as you're opening up to Luke 23, just a reminder that we have a service available so that you can participate in our time uh, even when you're not here. It's uh, through a website called SpeakPipe, S-P-E-A-K, dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. If you go to that website, uh, there will be a button that you can toggle and you can leave a message, something similar to voicemail. So if you have a question, comment, something that you would like to add to our meeting or a question that you'd like to ask, we encourage you to go to www.speakpipe.com slash Monday Night Bible Study and leave us a message. Luke chapter 23, I need a volunteer. We're going to read the verses around the verse that we're looking at. So uh, we don't normally do that, but I want to take the time to do that because I think it's important to set the scene a little bit. So Luke chapter 23, I need a volunteer, verses 33 through 46. 23, 33 through 46. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Through 46. Sorry. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until there in the afternoon, until three in the afternoon, sorry. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out, with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. 
All right, thanks for reading that. I know that was long, and that's why we don't normally do that. Uh, so I need another volunteer because she's tired. Yes. Just to read verse 43 for us. All right, thanks for reading that. All right, so you see the whole scene. This is Jesus' crucifixion, according to Luke, the physician. He has a unique uh, perspective on the crucifixion. You, you see some similarities, some differences throughout the Gospels, but he had his perspective. And so this was his perspective on what happened at the crucifixion. And so you see a scene there at the place called the Skull, and there is Jesus being crucified with two criminals. Or as some Bibles say, malefactors. Those are the two other guys that are being crucified with Jesus. So Jesus, two other criminals, two criminals, excuse me, that are being crucified with him. And they, Luke goes into a descriptor of what was going on there. That Jesus was being mocked. He, there was cruelty going on, abuse, contempt. And all of these things were happening. The, the soldiers were making fun of him. The rulers were sneering at him. And they were trying to tempt him to do something. Or if you're the son of God, then save yourself and all this stuff. And so they're just basically mocking him. And we know that there was quite a bit of cruelty that was done to him before this, before he even made it to the cross. We know that he was flogged. We know that he was beaten. He was spat upon. We know all these things happened before he even got to the cross. And then now he's on the cross and people are just jeering and mocking and are abusive toward him. That's what's going on. So to, to understand that, I want, I want that first to be understood that that's what's going on. <laughs> to the point that even one of the other, one of the criminals that was there, one of the malefactors made fun of him. And that's a guy that was being crucified with him. Now you'd think normally, you ever get into a situation where you're in with a group of people where something bad has happened? Don't you normally bond together? I mean really, like if you're in a place and the power goes out and or whatever, you normally bond together with the people that are there. You're all sharing the same miserable experience. And so you share in the misery and you're nice to each other. For however long that happens. But as soon as it's over, you run each other over to get out of the place or whatever. But at least during the crisis, normally people will at least come together. I can remember being stuck one time. I was on a, what I used to do a prayer tour around New York State. And I would go to different campuses and I would pray on the campuses. And so I was in New York City. I was heading across the, uh, Cross Bronx Expressway. Big highway in New York City. And traffic, it was snowing outside. Traffic just completely came to a halt. So I turned on the radio to find out what was going on on the Cross Bronx Expressway because there's weather and traffic on the 10s. On 1010, when? No, never mind. Anyway, I, I, I dialed in to find out where the traffic was. I don't know how many, but a bunch of tractor trailers jackknifed and were in an accident, completely blocked the road. The whole Cross Bronx Expressway was a big parking lot. And so we were there on the Cross Bronx Expressway for four hours. And it was cold. So people were trying to keep the cars running. But then 
Their people's cars were running out of gas on the highway because we were sitting there so long. One guy's battery died that was right near us and all this stuff. But it was we were there for so long. The guy whose battery died opened up his hood, took the battery out of the car, and walked to a parts store to get a new battery to install in the car. That's how long we were sitting there, right? But he was helping out the person who didn't have gas and was able to get a gas can for him so then they could walk to a gas station and get some gas so they could fill their car up with gas. And people kind of banded together, you know, because we were all in it together, miserable, sitting there, day ticking, gone, past, done. All right, I'm trying to get out to Stony Brook, so I still got a ways to go. And I timed it just right so I wouldn't hit rush hour. Yeah. Guess when four hours was up? Yeah, rush hour going over the Throgs Neck Bridge. So, so I mean, we were all in it together. All of us. And we kind of banded together. Well, that didn't even happen here. You got one of the guys being crucified with Jesus, and he's making fun of him. He's mocking him. That's how bad it was. And so I want you to think about the situation Jesus is in. The cruelty, the mockery, the abuse, the contempt. All of those things. And yet Jesus, Jesus showed and offered no anger toward any of them. In fact, instead of being angry at the people that were mocking him and abusive toward him and were cruel to him and were showing contempt, instead of that he prayed for them. He interceded for them. That's what was going on. And because he did that, one the other the other criminal that was on the other cross, he was moved by that. He was moved by Jesus not responding in kind. To the point that he rebuked the other criminal that was mocking him and making fun of him. And what I want you to think about here is that he was moved by seeing the compassion and the forgiveness of Jesus toward, and I'm going to use this word, but I want you to understand it in context, toward sinners. Because I don't, I don't know how many of you consider yourselves sinners, right? But if you're not experiencing the really deep love of God, and you're not experiencing the, the, the really deep acceptance of God in your life, and you're not experiencing what it is to be super close with God in your life, chances are there's some lingering thing in you that thinks that you're not worthy or that you don't you know, add up to or whatever it is you think you need to do in order to experience that love, in order to experience that closeness, or get into that deep place with God. It's likely that there's a barrier there because of something you were taught or something that was modeled to you or something that someone spoke over you at some point in your life. But this guy, he got a revelation of that. How? He saw it in action. He was suffering. He was hanging on a cross. Just like Jesus was. And just like the other criminal was. And yet his response to Jesus was completely different. It was a response of faith. It was a response. He was moved on in his heart, in his spirit, to, to say something to not only Jesus, but to the other guy and rebuke him for what he was doing. 
And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you get to your kingdom. Do you hear the faith in that? Do you hear the faith that he's speaking to a man who is being crucified, he's being put to death by the authorities for being a criminal? And he's looking at this man who was in the same boat as he was, and he said, and he had enough faith in him to say, remember me when you get to your kingdom. That's a lot of faith. Because the circumstance would tell him that's not true. The people all around him mocking Jesus would tell him that's not true. The guy that was being crucified with him would tell him that's not true. Everything around him was telling him that's true. And yet somewhere in his own heart, somewhere in his own life, he was able to see something that nobody else could see. And I'm going to give you a little proposal here, and I want you to think about this. This guy, in this moment... Now, that's important you understand that. In the moment that he's speaking right now, this guy may have been Jesus' only true disciple in that moment. Because where were the other disciples? They all ran away. Okay, We know John ends up showing up there at the cross with Mary because Jesus speaks to him in, in the Gospel of John records it. But the disciples were gone. And then after Jesus died, they were in hiding, in fear. But here's a guy that's dying on a cross in public, in the midst of the cruelty, in the midst of the mockery, in the midst of the abuse and the contempt and everything else that everybody was throwing up their way. In the midst of all that, here's a guy that, that had the faith to say to Jesus, remember me when you get to your kingdom. He was convinced. He wasn't hiding. He couldn't go anywhere, but he wasn't hiding. He didn't have to say anything. He could have. Or or anybody else. But the public display that he gave was one of faith. Because he he saw something. He knew something. When he saw that compassion and he saw Jesus praying, he's the first answer to the prayer. To the intercession that Jesus prayed. He's the first answer to that prayer. That guy right there. And he may have been, and really think about that, he may have been Jesus' only true disciple in that moment. I mean, that really, really believed. That really, really had any faith. That wasn't afraid. I wouldn't make that assumption. I have no idea. Jerusalem was big enough that not everybody knew. We don't know where he was from either. He may have. I'm not saying he didn't. But I'm not going to make an assumption he did. The only thing we have to go on, really, in the text, is what he saw Jesus do in that moment. That's all we have to go on. In that moment, he saw beyond death. Do you see what I'm saying? He saw beyond Jesus' death. Do you understand the faith in that? The other disciples couldn't see beyond his death. That's why they were afraid. Didn't know what was going to happen. They were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of the people that, that the authorities. Who they were afraid of. And when I said that, I'm just quoting scripture. That's what the Bible says. Yeah. 
expected when you have an earthly reign, right? You're like overthrow Rome and all that, right? You're then there are original expectations of the society. Yes. Yep. And here he's being crucified. Right. And it's shattering that paradigm. But this guy, apparently, apparently this guy got it. He saw beyond death. In other words, he saw beyond Jesus' death. He's like, remember me when you get to your kingdom. That's a strong statement. That's a strong faith statement. So he made that statement. And so the words of Jesus is what then Jesus says. He says, "This this thing I'm about to tell you is true. And this is his answer to the, the malefactor, to the criminal. He's like, what I'm about to tell you is true. Some of your Bibles might say, verily, verily. But this is the truth. That's what Jesus says. What I'm about to tell you is true. And, and how do you know that? Because Jesus is speaking. Alright? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna justify that statement any more than saying that. The reason you know that what Jesus is about to say is true is because he's speaking. His words are true. So what does that mean about the words in the Bible that Jesus spoke? They're true. Those red words in the Bible, they're true. And it's a joke among a lot of Christians. It's like, it used to be a saying when I first got, became a Christian. And people would say, oh, it sounds like, you know, read the red and pray for the power. And I can't tell you how many times I've been through the New Testament reading the red. Because every word of that is true. I believe it. And I'm going to keep reading it. And I'm going to let it sink into me. And I did that when the beginning of my, the beginning of time that I was believing in Jesus. And it was, it was, I just kept reading it through and through. I mean, I read the Bible otherwise and stuff, but man, I would read the red through the Gospels. Sometimes I'd do it on the weekends. Just go through it. Go through it. Go through it. Because it's true and I wanted that truth in me. I still want that truth in me. People want to argue about stuff. You know, a lot of arguments that Christians have can be solved by reading the red part. They can. You want to argue about things that Paul said. Read the red part. Clear right up. I mean, I'm serious. I'm totally serious about that. And I've gotten into enough of these discussions with people. I've gotten enough of these, these arguments with people about this or that or this doctrine or this thing or this epistle or that. Read the red. Because you know that's true. And let that sink in. Let that become your foundation. Let that become the standard. Let that set the tone. Then read the rest of it. And I know that sounds really simplistic and it's kind of a cute, cutesy thing to say, but it really is. There's some power in that. And I want to speak that. There's power in that. There's power in understanding His words are true and letting that truth sink into your heart and into your life. The Old Testament makes more sense. The epistles make more sense because you have a foundation of the words of Jesus in you. So Jesus starts off by saying that this is true, what I'm about to tell you, even if it's unlikely. Okay? If Jesus says it, it's true. What about if it's a little bit unbelievable? Well, if Jesus says it, it's true. What about if it's nonsensical? Doesn't make any sense to your brain. 
doesn't matter. If Jesus said it, it's, it's true. What if it's ridiculous? It might be ridiculous. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. But it's in the red, so it's true. Jesus said that. It's true. Far-fetched? Far-fetched, even. Surely, far-fetched? Still true? Jesus said it. Impossible? Could be impossible. Well, no. Well, he said it, so it's true. So we're not going to worry about that. How about just plain old stupid? That's how stupid. Still true. You're stupid. You're stupid, right. Still true. It's still true. And, and I know, I'm, I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to mock anyone or I'm not trying to be too, uh, babyish by saying things like that. But do you understand how many arguments you've had in your brain because of those words? When it comes between what you think and what Jesus said? Do you get it? Even if it's, it's unlikely or unbelievable or nonsensical or ridiculous or far-fetched or impossible or stupid to you, doesn't mean it's not true. Because you are not the end-all standard on truth and understanding. In fact, we're far from it. Each one of us far from that. One thing I do know, though, if Jesus said it, it's true. So if I think that it's stupid, who needs to change their mind? Me. I need to change my mind. Jesus doesn't need to convince me. That's not his job. He spoke the truth. My job is to change my mind so that I do believe it. And I'm gonna, I gotta rework how I'm thinking about things. I gotta rework how I'm seeing things. I gotta rework what I think stupid in my life. Yeah, I do. Or unlikely. Or whatever it is, whatever word that is keeping us from believing what Jesus has said, we need to get rid of that so that we can take hold of what he actually said and let that truth permeate, get really deep down into who we are. It will revolutionize your life if you do it. Something that simple will revolutionize your life. I didn't Notice I didn't say it can revolutionize your life. It will revolutionize your life if you do it. I mean, I'd rather be stupid. I'd rather be stupid than not believe he's true. Right? That's a fact. <laughs> right? So I will take the mantle of stupid in order to believe him for what he says. I don't care. Well, even that guy had enough sense to just take a shot. Right? I mean, what else? He was just like, well, even if in case it's just true. <laughs> well, he wasn't even that good a criminal. I mean, obviously he got caught. I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> but but here it is. And, and this is the other part of this. You know, I want you to think about this. If he was possibly Jesus' only disciple at that moment, I'm not saying forever, but in that moment, if he was Jesus' only disciple... Who was Jesus' only follower, his only disciple? A criminal that was being crucified with him. Why are you so hard on yourself? And I, and I mean that. I mean that as, as, as plainly as I possibly can. You have a criminal here as possibly Jesus' only disciple 
And you're hard on yourself. Here's a guy that did something so bad, the Romans not only arrested him, they decided he deserved to die a gruesome death by crucifixion. Obviously, obviously not a stellar citizen. A criminal of some kind. And why are you so hard on yourself? You're probably better than him. At least by whatever standard you're using. Yes. Yes. Okay. So using that logic, here's a criminal being crucified on the cross. Who, by his own volition, wants to identify with Jesus? Says, I, I have faith in you. I want you to remember me when you get to your kingdom. What does Jesus do with that guy in public in front of the people that are ridiculing both of them? What does he do? He embraces him. He embraces him and identifies with him. (laughs) He's a terrible representative of Jesus in public. Horrible. Everybody's making fun of that guy. They've all judged him already. And, And he's a criminal. He's horrible. But he's the guy, Jesus just completely embraces him. Right there. In public. I mean, when you're, when your savior, when, when the one that you're representing died as a criminal being mocked and ridiculed and abused, how much worse are you gonna do in the public realm? Than he did himself. I mean, we, we, we sanitize Jesus because we know the end of the story. But the reality of it is those people that were standing there that day, a lot of them would never know the end of the story. And yet he identified with that guy, that criminal, and he himself was identified as a criminal. So how much worse are we going to look than that? I'm just saying by that standard, that's all. Do you kind of see what, you understand what I'm saying, right? Or not? Well, right. <laughs> right, you got to look at the motivation, though. <laughs> they were well motivated to do that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and again, I would ask the question, too, and th- I'd always ask this question when somebody brings that up, is, so how'd that work out for them? <laughs> Terribly. I mean, it's just terrible. So it didn't work. That's why something else had to happen. So we can't, so in other words, we can't keep the same forms into this new paradigm. Okay, so that, I mean, I hate to hijack what you're saying, but it's just when the Bible says repent now, is, does it look different? Well, I think obviously it does. Okay, we're not repenting to somehow avoid, at least, it, okay, I'm just going to give you my perspective. We're not repenting to somehow avoid punishment. We're repenting because we've been given an opportunity to see change and to see something better. 
And so the motivation for it is different in a large sense, in a, in a real kind of macro sense. The motivation is different. And so we're looking at it, it said, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive, and he will cleanse. So we're looking at it, it's like, well, why would I want to confess my sins? Because he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive, and he will cleanse. There's a better life out there. There's a better way. Not, I better confess my sins before I get struck by lightning. Which is a whole different motivation. Well, right. Or whatever it is. whatever Whatever's in our head from whatever story we're reading. But a different dispensation, a different understanding, a different um, a revelation, a different covenant requires a different way of seeing ourselves, a different way of seeing God, and a different way of responding to Him. He identifies with sinners. And so, for us to think that we're going to somehow represent Him better than His own self-identification with sinners is slightly arrogant and fruitless. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So why are we turning? There's something better. Right. If you get on the road to Washington, D.C., and you find out you're on the road to Pittsburgh, you want to get to Washington, D.C., right? Okay. Right. Right. So there's some, you know, there's a better way. There's a better way. And you're taking the better way. You're taking the better choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the sacrificial system is over. It's done. Yeah. One sacrifice. Done. All right. All right, so what does he say? All right, and this is the other part of this. This is also true. This is the words of Jesus. What he does is he assures this guy and what he's about to say, and I don't want to say this before we look at what he's about to say, he assures this criminal that he's identifying with that the companionship, the relationship that they had just forged would continue into eternity. He assures him of that. By saying, what I'm about to tell you is true. He wants to make sure he understands that this is not just for a moment. This is going to be forever. Right. Right. 
Right? There's a companionship there. You'll be with me. Right? And remember, it's a human being is dying on a cross, talking to another human being that's dying on a cross. And he says, don't worry. I'm going to tell you, this is the truth. Today, you'll be with me. So it's for one human being speaking that to another, that there's something literal about that. All right? Yeah. All right. So, so he uses the word today. And that, that's important. That Jesus uses the word today. Because he doesn't speak of sometime coming. Or he doesn't say, you know, one day we'll all remember this together. He's saying today. And so it's a complete fulfillment is about to take place of what he's saying. Today is the complete fulfillment. Not tomorrow, not down the road, not in a thousand years, today. And so there's something really important about that as you're forming your thoughts on what happens when you die. As we're forming our thoughts, our theology on what happens when people die, I want you to think of this verse today. You will be with me in paradise. Now, the word paradise is kind of an interesting word. Oh, and the other thing I'm going to say is, when Jesus spoke that, he was speaking that they would be together, but they wouldn't have their bodies. Because Jesus' body wasn't raised for a while, if you think about it. And in this guy's body, the, the other criminal, the criminal guy there, his body wasn't raised yet. So they would be together, but you have to see that as something spiritual. That their spirits or their souls or whatever part of us that lives on outside the body, that they would be together that day. Because their bodies, after Jesus breathed his last, that last verse that Stacy read, his body, where was it? Still hanging on that tree, right? And then it was taken down and it was hastily prepared and it was placed in a tomb. So his body was still there. But where was Jesus and the other criminal? They were together. Now, uh, somebody look at Philippians one twenty three. What's Philippians one twenty three? So to be absent from the body is to be present with him. Right, so that verse speaks to the red here. So if you're going to understand that verse that Paul's writing, you need to know this verse to get what that means. Because I've heard some really bad theology on that verse. But I see it here that this is what Jesus says. And not only is this what Jesus said, he said, this is the truth. I assure you, this is the truth. And so he says that that today you will be with me in paradise. I have an interesting word, paradise, there. Its root is a Persian word. The word he uses for paradise. 
And what it refers to is a land that's enclosed as a park or garden for a king. That's the word. It's a park or garden for a king enclosed. It's also used in a few other places in scripture. I'm going to give you a few and then I'm going to, we're going to look at one of them. Uh, the first place uh, I would share with you is uh, Song of Solomon 4.13. It's used there. Ecclesiastes 2.5. It's used there. Nehemiah 2.8. It's used there. And I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. It's also used there. Genesis 2.15. Anybody guess what that's referring to? Garden of Eden. That's the same word. Again, it's an enclosed garden or park for a king. That's the word. And so, as you're looking at that, somebody read uh, 2.15, Genesis 2.15. Okay, now if you just looked at what those words mean, like let's say you extrapolate, like it's the, that word garden is translated paradise in, in when Jesus used it there. And, and you look at what the word Eden means. Uh, what, if you just look at what the words mean, it means a paradise of delight is another way to say garden of Eden. A paradise of delight. If you just extrapolate the words. And so what I want you to see from this is some language that's being used by biblical writers to express that place where God is. And you see other types of this kind of language used. And I'm not trying to draw a theology based on these words. But what I want you to understand is that they, there has to be some way to describe this is where God is, this is where we're going to be, this is the, the end result of what it is that God has for us. This is the, this is, this is the place. And so it could be referred to as whatever you want to refer to it. Jesus referred to it as paradise, but using the same word as the word that's used for the Garden of Eden. And if you know anything about our theology, you know anything about our foundational teachings, one of the things that we believe is that the place we're heading for is the place we came out of. That when God created the heavens and the earth, He didn't make any mistakes. And that He placed us into this garden, into this paradise, for us to live there. And have fellowship with Him and fellowship with one another. It was our decision that caused the problem. It wasn't His problem, it was our problem. And so all the work of redemption that's been taking place ever since then, all the work of the Holy Spirit that's been taking place, all the work of Jesus, the Savior, the Word of God that's been taking place since then is our return to that place that we were created for. I've always believed that. And here you see Jesus speaking that over this malefactor and saying, you're going to be with me, where? And I'm just going to add my own little thing here, right back where we started. We're going to be together and you're going to be with me. In other places, uh, they refer to it, and Jesus telling, he was uh, telling a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And, and in that, he referred to the place where Lazarus was as Abraham's bosom. Now, I've heard some really weird doctrine about that. But it's more of this kind of language that, that speaks to 
You know, that place. Well, how do you describe it? I don't know. So you use figurative language. You use language that's rich in meaning. And you say, this is that place. And you call it a few different things because it, it gives you a different idea of what that is and, and gives you a bigger picture of what it possibly could be. You know, the whole world doesn't speak in technical language. And it's okay. People speak in poetry. Yeah. People speak in figurative language. People speak in, in, in artistic language. I mean, in musical, lyrical language. It's good. It's good. It, 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 we, we've somehow devalued that to value technical language more. Big mistake. It's a big mistake. Because we're not machines and the whole world is in a bunch of machines. We live in an organic world that needs organic language to describe it. And we, and we have a spiritual world that we're part of that needs a spiritual language to describe it. It's good. So, uh, Abraham's bosom, the reference for that is Luke 16.22 if you want to have that reference. But it's the paradise of God. Somebody look at Revelation 2.7. There's a couple other places where they use that word paradise, meaning garden. Meaning, you draw the picture. Revelation 2.7. Yeah. Do you hear the word? You hear that again? Yeah. Where was the tree of life? And where was it in Genesis? The Garden of Eden, right? It was, you, I'm not taking crazy pills here, right? You understanding what it's saying? There's no crazy pills here. It's, it's, it's what it's, it's what it's saying. Second Corinthians 12.4. Here's an experience of Paul. You want to understand this experience? Read the red. Seriously. Second Corinthians twelve four. All right. So, but now, now other people will major on. He was caught up into the what heaven is it? The third heaven. Yeah. Some people you take that term third heaven and they make a doctrine out of it. You want to understand what he's talking about? He's talking about the parrot. You want to understand that? Read the red. What did Jesus say? Who's with, who, where is he? He's in paradise. Who's with him? At least we know the thief on the cross is with him. But they're together there in paradise. What else is in paradise? Well, we know the tree of life's there. So Paul got caught up into the garden. He got caught up into paradise. So how are we supposed to understand that? going to understand that based on what Jesus said. Right? Why are we going to make it any more complicated? And I, and I know I'm ripping on some of your theology tonight, but I, I really don't want to make it any more complicated than that. It doesn't need to be. At all. It doesn't need to be any, more, any deeper than that, man. Because <laughs> that's pretty deep.
And so, this thief, this malefactor, this criminal, he said, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And Jesus' response was, today you're going to be with me in my kingly garden. You see, he, he's drawn off that idea of kingdom. Don't steal anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Try not to steal anything out of my garden. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. <laughs> but you see, the kingly garden is the highest joy of the kingdom. Ever since we got cast out of it, we've been working our way back. And today, and we see in this passage the invitation back in, don't we? That's what we see. It's the invitation back in. That's what Jesus said. We'll be with him. Where is he? He's in the kingly garden. Our highest joy is being fulfilled by understanding that we've got the invite back. And so I want to encourage us tonight that we need a, a different way of living and a different way of seeing things. Jesus identified with the sinner. And the sinner identified with Jesus. And in that moment... Jesus said, come on. That's it. And if you ever get around people, they've got all these big doctrines about you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to fulfill this, this is a must, you can't, you know, if you can't be saved if you don't do this, you don't pray the sinner's prayer, or you don't, you're not baptized, or you're not this, or you're not that, and people have all, all of these different things they say you got to do in order to get in, and all these other stuff, or that's in your head, or in your mind, I want you to read this read over and over again in this passage. I want you to look at this guy, this interaction. I want you to look at Jesus' possibly his only disciple at his death. I want you to look at this guy. And I want you to tell me what you need. What you got to do. What you got to do in order to be with him in paradise. Do you see? Was that guy baptized? Did he pray the sinner's prayer? No. No. Was he baptized in the Holy Spirit? No. 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 Did he go through confirmation? No. 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 Pretty simple, really. No, no. Lord me. Repeat after me. Lord me. Dear me, I accept me into your, no, I'm sure someone is thinking, blasphemy, oh, okay, all right, nope, nope, and I'll respect to Billy Graham and all that, I, I, you know, and I understand the tool that's used, but when it comes right down to it, what happened here? Yeah, so 
I, I encourage you to simplify your own brain. Do it. Do it. Just simplify it. Simplify it. Simplify Jesus' identification. Simplify who he identified with. All that. Get free. Get free. Get free in your own heart. Get free in your own mind tonight. All right. Any questions or comments? Okay, let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, just... I pray for what I pray to be a, a, a really simple... And for some of us, a really fresh revelation of what it is to know you and to be with you and how you love us and how you chose to identify with us in all our weaknesses and in our sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that kind of love. Thank you for that kind of mercy. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for loving us. Thanks. So God, I pray that you would cleanse our hearts and cleanse our minds of all the junk that got piled in there over the years. All the ideas and all the rules and requirements and all the things that seemed so important at the time put in there by well-meaning people God, I pray that we could get free tonight. Because your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So we, we lay aside the heaviness. We lay aside the things that don't matter. We just want to be with you. So we give you thanks tonight. For that kind of a simplicity and that kind of a love that you're showing us and you continue to show us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.